Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. On the podcast today, we have Steve Forbes, Chairman and Editor in Chief of Forbes Media Group. Steve, thanks so much for coming today. And of course, we have Kathy Wood, CEO and CIO of Arc, in the room as well. Oh, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you, Steve, very much. Steve, you recently put out a video or part of a video that basically was very bullish on the kind of state of the economy. And you said why the stock market will boom. And you gave several reasons for that. It seems like the prevailing view right now is that maybe things aren't so rosy going forward. We have the yield curve inverting. We have a lot of trade issues with China. Why are you so optimistic on the state of the economy and the stock market? Well, I think uh, Kathy has pointed out that the inverted yield curve sometimes is a sign of innovation, not a sign of monetary mischief. When everyone is depressed about something, they're usually wrong. The only thing that does worry me is the trade situation. There doesn't seem to be sufficient appreciation of how sophisticated these supply chains become, how critical they are to the products we take for granted. For example, 30-some-odd countries contribute pieces that make up uh, the iPad, and uh, when those are disrupted, they have an outsized influence on the economy. And that's why earlier this year, uh, a measure called gross output, which measures most of the economy, not just the final sales. GDP, we discuss in a podcast this week on What's Ahead podcast, points out that looking at just GDP is like looking just at the bottom line of a company. Any analyst worth his or her salt wants to know what's behind Mm -hmm. that number. Mm -hmm. Revenues, expenses, R&D, everything else. GDP ignores that. And it sort of gives the impression that consumption drives the economy. We all, not all, but we should know that it's production that drives the economy. That enables consumption. So uh, the trade wars, they're really skirmishes. There's not yet a full-scale trade war such as we had in the 1930s. But it is already having its uh, disruptive effects. You saw in the first quarter that uh, for the first time in a long time, what they call gross output, I like the English version name better, called total output, mm-hmm. fell. And it tells something about government ideologies that these numbers are always released months after the GDP estimates and uh, numbers. So uh, we'll eventually get the second quarter several months from now. But that's the thing that worries me. Trade wars are not easy to win. No war takes the course you expect for it, whether it's a combat war or trade wars. They never go the way you expect. They always have unexpected turns, and we're seeing that play out today. Can I ask you a question, Steve, about the trade wars? It seems to me in talking to Larry Kudlow, our friend, and others who are more involved in Washington, that 
out of frustration with what's going on in China, at least the negotiations, that the probability of trade agreements with Japan and Europe, Korea, and the UK, uh, the probability of those is increasing now because in striking those agreements, they would be isolating China perhaps further. Uh, what do you think of that? I mean, you could turn this around because obviously Trump, want, President Trump wants a good outcome here and say, okay, further isolating China if they are not going to agree or are going to renege on agreements, whatever the story is, could make these other trade agreements more interesting to us and the sense of urgency behind them increasing. You could have uh, negotiated changes in uh, NAFTA. You could have uh, sat down with the EU and uh, negotiated a free trade agreement. There was talk of that several years ago of doing a grand deal with the EU, doing something if Britain ends up getting out of the Roach Motel <laughs> from the EU. One doesn't preclude the other. And uh, one also must recognize that with the EU, you're never going to get an agreement on agriculture. Mm -hmm. The German auto industry would be quite fine to have no tariffs on either side. Mm -hmm. So, uh, But you could have done those things without putting on mm -hmm. tariffs. Tariff is another word for sales tax. It definitely and is a tax. And the ultimate payer is the consumer and the business. When the president talks about all the tens of billions of dollars coming in, that doesn't come out of thin air. Right. And it's paid for one way or the other. It's very disruptive. And it's the lack of predictability. If you don't know what the rules of the game are, if Mexico is going to get suddenly hit with sales taxes because you don't like what they're doing at the border, that just is a barrier, small though it may be. Thankfully, that was very temporary to progress. And in terms of China's abuses, uh, you deal with the specific bad actors, you know, whether it's individuals, banks, or uh, companies. If you take a bank, start with a small one just to make your point, and knock it out of the SWIFT system, which is how you do international payments, you're dead. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. going after the bad actors, if you need to reform the WTO, right now there's feelings that the US wouldn't mind seeing the World Trade Organization, which adjudicates these disputes, uh, disappear. Mm -hmm. That would be a mistake. One, we win 85% of the cases that go before it. If it takes too long, if we need to make it more modern in the digital age, just as we did with the trade in the 1990s, which created the WTO, you go and do the scut work to do it. But you don't uh, blow up the system or create uncertainty within the system. And in terms of a Trans-Pacific Partnership, I always thought they should have called it the Trump-Pacific Partnership. That might have saved <laughs> the deal. You would have isolated China there. That was 13 nations, not China. Right. China was delighted when we pulled out. Mm -hmm. The other countries went ahead anyway, but the agreement doesn't have the impact that if we're part of it. And people are now, inefficient though it may be, are cutting their own deals without the United States. So in terms of abuses, you deal with the abusers, but you don't need to punish the American economy in doing it. And can I ask you one question about your total output comments? I've been struck, understanding that is what is happening, that the consumption statistics have been so strong and remain so strong. Consumer confidence remains strong. So could it be here that, yes, businesses have pulled back because they're very uncertain about what's going on, especially on the trade front, 
the consumer continues to power ahead. And so what we really have here is inventories beginning to liquidate or the pace of growth trailing that of consumption so that we're setting up for a big cyclical rebound if we get any good news on trade. Well, the consumer spending retail sales, those are lagging indicators. They come at the end of this. You see that before the downturn. You have to produce to consume. Absolutely. And uh, you're starting to see disruptions in that. Now, if we came up with an agreement with China and took the uncertainty of bashing the Germans off the table, got an agreement with uh, Japan for what it's worth, that would be, uh, you would see the market go up uh, 20%, easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's ready to go. But the market really hasn't made much progress since uh, we started to put these uh, sales taxes starting with steel and aluminum. Mm So that's the only cloud on the horizon, not mm-hmm. deficits, not the usual things that worry people. Mm-hmm. Another thing would be helpful is for the Federal Reserve to be brought to heel. They should run down their portfolio, sucking out three plus trillion from uh, the banking system is insane. Mm-hmm. Artificially lowering interest rates is very disruptive. And the idea the Fed can guide the economy is preposterous. We should have learned things like the Soviet Union and Maoist China, where that leads. It does not work. Now, they're more benign in the Fed than they are in uh, Maoist Beijing. But the idea they can guide the economy is silly. They influence it, but they can't guide it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God, I've left him speechless. <laughs> I know, we left you speechless. going to go somewhere. Um, <laughs> Steve, you mentioned some concerns of how you could see if we solved the trade deals, the economy would do well. But overall, you're positive despite of these concerns. Why? Is some that? good things have been done. One is if you understand production, you can see the virtue of the tax bill of uh, December 2017 when it was signed, reducing the corporate tax rate, not punishing uh, companies that make investments, allowing them to write off the investments, most of it in uh, year one. The bill was much more convoluted than it should have been on personal corporations and pass-throughs and silly things like that. The Republicans, this is Congress's fault, not the White House's fault, pays too much attention to the Congressional Budget Office. The Congressional Budget Office pretends it can score, as they say, the impact of these uh, pieces of legislation 10 years out. If they knew it was going to happen 10 days out, they would not be working at the CBO. They would be buying lottery tickets or uh, speculating in stocks or commodities. Mm -hmm. They have no clue. And if, uh, you know, the old phrase, Geigo, garbage in, garbage out. If uh, you assume that tax cuts, uh, reductions in tax burdens don't work, then uh, you're going to come out with a lousy score. So the Republicans should have changed that 25 years ago when they Mm -hmm. first controlled Congress, did not. But the bill did more good than harm. Another big thing, which everyone says, but it's sometimes easy to underestimate the import because it's so boring and small stuff in its individual pieces, is deregulation. Regulation is a tax. Estimates are that it costs the economy $2 trillion a year. Any burdens you take is good. Businesses love to be able to wake up in the morning and not fear Washington is conjuring up ways to make their lives more miserable. Mm-hmm. Philip Howard, who has been an anti-excess regulation law person for years, cites a story that the New York Times ran a few years ago of a up orchard in upstate New York, small orchard. They're governed by 5,000 
different roles from 17 different programs and agencies. Uh, they have to keep 13 different clipboards. And one of the silly, one of the rules they have to comply with is when they remove the apples from the tree and put them in the cart, they have to then cover the cart with a tarp, a cloth, as they wheel it into the barn, because if they don't cover it, birds they might get bird droppings on it. Now, conjure that. The <laughs> apples have been on the open in the trees for five months. <laughs> and when it goes into the barn, they get washed. Yeah. But still, these silly regulations, debilitating regulations. So uh, what they're doing there is profoundly important. And I think people like Mike Mulvaney, chief of staff, is uh, pushing this. And another good thing they're doing, which is causing a ruckus, is starting to move agencies outside of Washington. Why should all the federal government functions be consolidated in Washington? That makes it easy for lobbyists. You get a distorted culture. So one idea is to uh, disperse Washington uh, government functions out to uh, the rest of the country, where you'd be among real people. One example is the uh, CDC, Centers for Disease Control. Where is that? Functions fairly decently. Atlanta. So why not move the FDA to Boston? We have a big scientific community out there. Why not move HUD to Detroit? And it's already started. Some uh, ag functions are now being moved out to Kansas. Imagine agricultural <laughs> agencies being in the farm belt. That's outrageous. Oh, 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 oh. Real ruckus. Another moving some are starting moving the Interior Department out to places like Colorado, where the interior mines and things like that, forests are out there. And they're starting to move on that. So for all the uh, tweetery, some substantive things have uh, started to have been done. And that's all to the good. There's uh, some big changes coming in the military in terms of a strategy dealing with China. The Marines and the Navy are uh, considering a policy of putting some real bases in the Pacific, either on man-made or a piece of real estate out there that they think uh, can cut China off from oil if we ever did have a conflict. And even if you uh, say, oh, well, they'll get bombed away anyway, the fact that we are showing our allies that we are in the Pacific and we're not going to be moved out, the political dividends on that, as the president say, are huge. <laughs> and uh, so when you look beneath the headlines, some substantive things are being done. That's why this whole thing on tariffs is so discouraging is they could achieve these goals without putting on sales taxes. Can I ask you two questions? People are wondering about the uncharted waters that negative yields, $17 trillion of negative yielding instruments out there. What is that telling us? It's telling what it's telling us is that the central banks have mucked up the credit markets. Mm-hmm. Because certain institutions have to buy securities mm-hmm. to uh, do even a short-term borrowings. You have to have collateral. And so you have to buy this stuff. And by depressing the price, you make sure that the market isn't functioning the way it should. You get artificial shortages. Mm-hmm. If the U.S., for example, were to announce tomorrow that it was going to issue 250 or 500 or billion or 1 trillion of a 100-year bond, and put a coupon on it, say of 2.5%, it would be oversubscribed in five minutes. Mm-hmm. 
because you can actually earn money from a solvent uh, country mm-hmm. for all the travails of Washington. This mm-hmm. is still a very rich, productive country, better than anything else in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'd snap it up in the nanosecond, which would uh, certainly help finance future debts and remove worries if interest rates pop up in the future. How do you finance the deficit and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. This would do it. I picked 2.5% because that was the yield, the heyday of Britain when uh, the pound was seen as uh, even better than gold, Mm -hmm. uh, Britain was able to issue government bonds. They're called consuls, Mm -hmm. standing for consolidated, consolidating the national debt. No maturity, Mm -hmm. 2.5%. The average rate over time was a little under three, but uh, no artificial stimulation on that. That was natural. It was seen as so good that you could trust it, that the purchasing power would not be changed over time. The value would not be changed over time. And you would take two and a half, three percent, not because you had to, but because this was good stuff to have. Right. And then one question before we leave policy. Obviously, if President Trump gets reelected, what do you think will be his top priorities in terms of tax policy? I would hope that he would go for legacy time, the flat tax, <laughs> uh, talking about wanting to cut the Leviathan down to size, that is a way to do it. Has he intimated any he, interest? He's intimated interest in it, uh-huh. and he's the kind of person who might do it, uh-huh. even though all the experts would say, oh, you can't do that. Right, blah, blah. right, right. And uh, you know, over 30 countries around the world have the flat tax, mm-hmm. and it's worked fairly well yes. in the real world. And it's uh, really a moral issue. Uh, the IRS estimates we spend uh, six billion hours a year filling out tax forms. Experts tell us we spend upwards of four hundred billion dollars a year complying with this monstrosity. So just go back twenty years. Mm-hmm. Imagine if all those uh, tens of billions of hours, all those trillions of dollars, and immense brain power and time had been used for productive pursuits like new products, new services, new technologies, mm-hmm. new cures for diseases, new medical devices, how much better off we would have been, what economists call the lost opportunity. Opportunity cost has been immense. And uh, so it's not just a numbers thing or what it's going to do, the deficit or how it can cock GDP. It just gets to where our productive capacities best applied. Mm -hmm. You'd start with that and uh, half the lobbying in Washington revolves around the tax code one way or the other. So you do that and you've uh, done something in terms of we the people, and people would applaud. Too often, the Republicans take the idea that we must go after specific programs here and specific programs there. The World War I equivalent, trench warfare. You gain a little yardage, then you lose it. It's a futile exercise. Go for the big thing. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is for the Fed to realize, which this Fed won't, is that a stable dollar is a good thing, just as Stable watches are a good thing. Stable rulers are a good thing. Stable scales are a good thing. No one has proposed dealing with the obesity problem by changing the number of ounces in a pound. Oh, increase it from 16 to 32 and everyone automatically loses 50% of their weight. Ah, yes, problem solved. No, money is a measure. Mm -hmm. Money is a measure. Mm -hmm. And uh, fooling around with how you measure things is not the way you get maximum growth and innovation. Right. 
I'd love to hear from you both on kind of the state of the valuation of the market right now. To be optimistic, you really have to think that either that can hold and earnings maybe grow or that can expand. We have the PE at somewhere like 22 uh, trailing versus historic 15. And of course, in software, that those are at historic highs right now. Well, you can make a case, a very good one, that you should not go in the market right now. But nobody can know market timing. As we sit here this morning, a bid has been made for AT&T. If you'd looked at AT&T before this morning, you'd say, here's a company hugely in debt in an area which is in turbulence. Would you buy a stock like that when there's so many other uh, more enticing ones around where dividends might go up instead of a, can they keep the dividend kind of thing? Well, somebody's come along and says, well, we're taking a piece of AT&T because we're going to divest them of the big acquisition they had, which they shouldn't have done in the first place, these people say. So the stock goes up. Who could have foreseen that? So trying to time these things is a dangerous exercise. And so since uh, saying people have a disciplined approach is like saying lose weight by eating less. Okay. Yeah. Not very helpful. I always divide it into two. On your retirement funds, if you don't have time to babysit and do your own research, pick a handful of index funds and just put a certain amount in each month or quarterly or annually, however you want to do it, and just forget about it. You'll do very nicely. Thank you very much. Not to sound Pollyannish, but this country always comes back from problems, even from the 1930s when the Dow went down 89%. It came back. You would have done fine if you could have held out, Mm -hmm. reinvested the dividends. And then uh, your non-retirement part, you can uh, pick out special situations, try to see uh, if you have a talent to sniff out things that other people can't sniff out and make a living at it. Terrific. But uh, most people don't have that capability, which is why we hire others. And uh, like Kathy, to uh, do that work for us, her, well, she and her you. team. My, an amazing team, right. But so in terms of the market, yes, it may be overvalued, but I'm not going to try to time it. Even at my age, I'll just ride through whatever storm there is, knowing that eventually it will come back. And one of the sad things of 2008, when you had one of the worst bear markets ever, a matter of months, the Broad averages down 54, 55%, stocks 70, 80, 90%. The stock unit for uh, Blackstone went down, uh, nobody like financials, 85, 90%. If you had uh, stuck with it, you would have been sitting very rich today. Mm-hmm. So, but how many people who said, I got to take something off the table, can't stand this, mm-hmm. got in when the market turned unexpectedly in March of 2009? And very few people did, and it's a great tragedy. So uh, since we're living longer, thankfully, if you're blessed and don't get a bad disease, somebody said the problem with fixed income securities is they're fixed. Mm -hmm. And unless you're playing the capital game, which is how you have to play the bond market these days, you should go for uh, securities that uh, can pay you either capital or dividends or hopefully a combination of both. So uh, yeah, it's interesting to see you. And if you are a good timer or you want to hedge for whatever reason, there are plenty of instruments to do it just in case. You won't have the upside if it goes up as much, but you certainly have insurance on the downside. Terrific. But uh, no one ever calls the market right for very long. 
as my grandfather liked to say, who founded our company over 100 years ago, 102 years ago to be exact, when he was asked about what was going to happen to economy or what stocks one should buy, he would always say, we make more money selling the advice than following it. <laughs> I think in terms of watching the sentiment out there, we are climbing a wall of worry. and Which is uh, bullish. <laughs> which, is, which is very bullish. And I think I like it when people think the world's coming to oh, an end, I, I, unless so there's a meteor I, coming. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I often uh, say during our research meetings, you know, okay, these are the bearish sentiments out here. This is great. The wall of worry is still in place. We're still scaling it. And I think a relative argument is very important to make here. You know, we've been in a bull market for bonds for almost 40 years now. Since and 1982. Most people, yes, most people who are investing today don't know anything but a bull market in bonds. I remember in 1981 when the long-term treasury got to 15 and a quarter. 15 and three quarters for okay, 20 15 years. 15 and three quarters, yeah, for 20 years. 20 years. Uh, and one of the scandals, which is why I think a treasury secretary has to take charge of this whole bond issuance uh, process is why didn't they have call provisions on those securities with these outlandish oh, interest right. rates? Every other corporate bond has a 10-year, municipals have a 10-year call provision, so uh, you can call them in at 105 or whatever number you have there, Right. but you uh, aren't stuck for 20 or 30 years with these crazy interest rates. They never did it. They didn't do it. At the time, in the equity markets, we had to talk bond investors off the ledge so that the equity market could be freed up to rally. Because the bond market had a 40-year bear market. Exactly. In the late, late, late 1940s when the companies were issuing with sound dollar, two and a half, three, two and three quarters percent from yes. AT&T and others. Yes. So what we said as equity investors, we used to say to bond investors, if you were to invest in this treasury security right now, what interest rates, where would interest rates have to go for you to lose money? And at the time, it was 66%. And even bearish bond investors at the time did not think that was going to happen. And I think Henry Kaufman turned around, Al Wojnarowski, all of, all of the doctors Boy. doom and gloom, right? Boy, names blast from the past. I know, yes. blast from the past. <laughs> but we're at the flip side of that right now. We ask investors who are used to not losing money in bonds, you know, the coupon had supported it over the years and so forth. You know, if interest rates, the long treasury, the 10-year treasury were to go back to 3% from roughly 1.5% now, they would lose 12.5% of their principal. Well, here, right? here, here's something that sounds counterintuitive. If bond prices can go down, treasuries can go down for one of two reasons. One is inflation, mm -hmm. real inflation, and there are signs that they might trigger that. But if the Fed and other central banks left the markets alone and you got real interest rates again, so a 10-year might be 25 3.5%, mm -hmm. that would be bearish for the bond market, but it would be Very. profoundly bullish for stocks, Yes, counterintuitive, and for the economy. Because it would mean that the capital markets would be functioning properly again. And small businesses would have more readily access. You would have institutions lending again. And uh, so- a bond bear market actually would be bullish. <laughs> actually, the best <laughs> stock market we've had is when the Fed was 
raising interest rates and letting and the I markets work. I hate that work. word, Fed raising or cutting. It was the, no business doing that. It's, you but know, you're right, when rates are allowed to reach a proper level. Right, right. Letting the markets work, critical the markets to a are bull people. market. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We agree. Yeah. But Kathy, so on that context, how do you feel about valuations and, and why you're comfortable What's with them right the, now? Uh, no, so first of all, relative valuations, equities are cheap relative to bonds. This is a little crude, but the PE ratio of the long-term treasury bond right now is one over 1.5. So that's 66%, you know, and you said trailing is 22. Forward-looking price earnings ratio for the S&P 500 is 17. I believe if you look at profits, there's a profit measure that I think is very important. It's lagged. It's in the GDP accounts. It's national income and product account profits. They have just now moved out to an all-time high. At the same time, interest rates, the discount factor, have taken a step down. So our friend Art Laffer has a metric called capitalized profits, which takes NIPA profits. NIPA takes out the distortions associated That's with inflation and deflation. That's a very important concept. And, and you saw in the late 90s, yes. uh, the divergence. Absolutely. So it's out to an all-time high. You take that and you take the interest rate. So you divide those profits by the 1.5, 1, 1. right? The undervaluation of the market based on that metric is extreme, believe it or not. Now, I don't think we should assume long treasury yields should stay at one and a half percent. So we have to normalize that a bit. But conceptually, we've just had profits break out. These are the highest quality profits in the market are by that measure. And you've had the interest rates, which discount future cash flows, drop to a new low. So capitalized economic profits are soaring. They're soaring. And I think that's another way of saying that the market is probably undervalued here and there is too much fear in the market. I wish that we could have accurate pricing of interest rates. Mm -hmm. In the 70s, for example, and we saw this in the early 2000s when the dollar was weakened, we saw a surge in commodity prices. Mm -hmm. And people concluded, oh, we're running out of wheat, we're running out of oil, running out of this, running out of that, world's coming to an end, save mm -hmm. your paper towels. <laughs> and it led to a huge misallocation of capital. Because mm -hmm. prices, without prices, you have no economy. Right. Prices are supposed to tell you, give you uh, the information you need, what is dear, what isn't dear. To Billions of times resources, and yes. create resources. Mm -hmm. And create resources, yes. And that's another thing about economics. They should not say allocation of resources. They should lead with the creation of mm -hmm. resources. I like that. So uh, we had the you know, housing prices were going up. What does that tell you? It tells you that houses are, houses are dear. They just keep going up. And that's why they invented a new mortgage called Why Have an Income? <laughs> uh, didn't matter. <laughs> it just kept going up. And we saw the disaster that led to and the human destruction that led to unnecessarily. So if uh, they would just let markets operate, that's why deregulation is so important. We have some IPOs now, but they're a fraction of what they should be in an economy like this. Why do uh, the unicorns wait to their billion dollars? Microsoft and Apple and others went very early. You as an individual investor could get in even if you got the post-IPO. Mm -hmm. You could get something uh, very mm -hmm. valuable. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, why are the number of listed securities so small? I grew up with a thing, an index called the Wilshire 5000. Well, now it's about, what, 2,400 or something? Right, right. And, and companies are buying back their shares. So the ones, the companies that are left out there yes. are lever have leveraged up to buy back their shares. So that's a double whammy in terms of So this supply. distortion of the credit markets from people who think they're smart enough to guide markets, guide the economy, is just something I wish, the again, the media would uh, take a little closer look at instead of being spoon-fed by the Fed. Oh, I, you know, the Fed gave me a background so I can uh, start hinting that a 25 basis point cut may be coming. You know, they try to prep the mark. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the bottom line is uh, less would be more. Mm -hmm. Yes. Steve, I love to switch tracks and talk about technology and investing, which is what our listeners are excited to hear about. You've been the editor-in-chief of the Forbes Media Group for a long time now. You've had front row seats to how technology has transformed the media industry. More like being in the gladiator pit. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, that is some certain firsthand experience. This is one area where technology has I think for those participating have been a little bit more painful, especially when the internet yeah, when giants- you see the lions coming after you, yes. <laughs> yes, and Google <laughs> and Facebook are your competitors. So walk us through about, maybe just throughout your history of how did this happen blow by blow in your seat as editor-in-chief? What did you think the internet was going to do for industry? What actually happened and how did the Forbes Media Group respond? Well, one reason I think you see the uh, actions in uh, journalism today is that for the first time, Journalists are actually being affected by what happens to the economy in a way that had never happened before. Your job is always in jeopardy. That was never the situation before. You might get fired, but it wasn't because uh, the company was getting downsized 85% because the internet destroyed it. Mm. Everyone loves the phrase, creative destruction from Joseph Schumpeter. Well, the creative part is nice. The destruction part is uh, quite, uh, quite, quite another thing. And one of the things that uh, politics should be uh, focused on is how do you enable these transitions to take place with minimal political disruptions that can upend getting in the way of progress. Mm -hmm. So in our case, everything I learned about print media was thrown out with the rise of uh, the internet. Mm -hmm. And uh, the basic model was created back in the 1830s, 1840s with the steam press which enabled mass circulation magazines and newspapers at a very cheap cost. And the model, even though the technology changed and the circumstances changed, the basic technology had not changed for 150 years. So uh, the internet comes along. And uh, one of the things about technology is even if you see a change coming, you really don't fathom it in terms of uh, how it's actually going to hit and it takes years to do it, and you get uh, false starts. That's why you get these busts all the time, autos and everything else, when something new comes along. And uh, so that's why I have to make a distinction between good bubbles and bad bubbles. One's just a normal shakeout, and the other is a government mischief. Mm -hmm. But in our case, we were fortunate in a couple of ways. One, in the mid-1990s, everyone suddenly went online. And most publishers thought going online meant taking a printed page and putting it on a screen, which was the equivalent when movies came along in the 1890s. Some people thought that a feature film was filming a stage play. No, very different medium. 
So uh, one of the things we did was we separated Forbes.com from Forbes Print, put in a separate building, separate staff, separate uh, reporting uh, structure, because human nature being what it is, you're always going to use what you have for your what you're doing now. And so uh, we wanted the baby in a separate uh, nursery. <sighs> and the other thing we did was we just didn't confine our content to stuff in Forbes magazine. We used outside content. And even today, even though they realize uh, media companies, you should have content you haven't created for another purpose, they still haven't done it in the scale we did. But it was an extremely difficult uh, transition, especially when uh, we combined the two, Forbes.com and Forbes magazine, talk about a culture clash. The print side journalists thought that the dot-com journalists were uh, peasants who just turned out trash each day. The online journalists thought the print journalists were lazy snobs who, uh, <laughs> if they did an article once a week, they patted themselves on the back at their work ethic. And it was tough. A lot of people, good people, could not make the transition and do both. Mm -hmm. One of the major changes Thanks to a decision of uh, one of my brothers, and uh, we executed it, was to uh, take the uh, non-magazine content to the nth degree. Today, we have over 3,000 contracted contributors to Forbes.com. Wow. Um, we still print eight or 900 articles a year, but we have over 110,000 pieces on Forbes.com. So the whole editing process changes, but this gets to what Peter Drucker, the great management oh, yeah. guru, oh, yeah. once said. He said, every organization should ask itself, what is your purpose? What is it you're trying to do? What is your mission? If you do that, you're less likely to get hung up with the means to it. achieve it, yeah. change. Yeah. Ours changed profoundly. On the sales side, we never, 20 years ago, you never heard of programmatic selling mm -mm. where you're done by <laughs> online and not yeah. by human beings. Yeah. Yeah. So enormous, Jan, and they're with us today. So uh, we get about 70, depending whose numbers you use, 70, 80, 90 million uniques a month on uh, Forbes.com. Most of our revenue now is non-print. About 85% is non-print. Wow. But Schumpeter still is out there. Mm -hmm. As my father liked to say, if you think you've arrived, you're ready to be shown the door. We're constantly coming up with new things for people. We're still in print. Uh, around the world, print is still popular. We have 38 licensed editions around the world, doing more online around the world, events around the world, you know, music. Suddenly they discovered with the blow up of uh, the traditional music industry that uh, these bands found they uh, had to go on the road again. The concerts in this digital age were more important than ever before. Absolutely. And uh, we have found that events are now uh, extremely important. Whether well, mm -hmm. it's our 30 under 30 in Bratislava, our 30 under 30, which will have thousands of people in Detroit in a few weeks. We had one in Israel uh, about a year ago with about 10,000 people. These things take on, uh, you might say, outsized importance. But it's a constant thing. And the worst thing you can do is what so many have done, and that is just wither away, turn your magazine into a, a menu, and... Uh, it's uh, not necessary. You have to realize it's about content. And one thing the web teaches you if, very quickly 
It is a relentless commoditizer. Mm-hmm. Just putting a name on something won't get you far for long. Right. People have to trust the brand, as they say. Mm-hmm. They have to know that they go to a certain name, what to expect with consistency. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, something that uh, you have to tackle every day. Well, and in this kind of envir- environment, yeah. You know, it's a reminder, as uh, somebody once said, you can eat well or sleep well, but not both. I do the <laughs> eating part with no problem. The sleep part, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> well, congratulations on your transformation. I think you've done a beautiful job of it. And I know, I know it's been wrenching over many years, but you seem to be a survivor and, uh, you know, Hopefully are doing thriver. things the right way and thriver. <laughs> no, this whole idea, I'm, I will be a speaker at your Detroit 30 Under 30. And I'm really looking forward to it. Terrific. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. I think that's very, very wise. And James James knows a lot about music. So uh, I think he can relate to what you've done. Well, I'd love to get James's opinion of uh, popular music today. Uh, I'm, I'm showing my age, but I don't think it holds a candle to uh, what we had 15, 20 years ago. And just uh, this... <laughs> that's um that's a i understand that point of view i think i think i was going oh, that's a nice way to be diplomatic dim- i understand your point of view. well you see i i went through my old music playlists and i always wondered why for example music i think we have a natural tendency to relate to our music of our childhood that tends to be the the golden years and the best memories and everyone would talk about how that was the best period but if you look under the covers today the amount of independent music being made by people you probably haven't heard of, most people haven't heard of, is of extraordinary quality and diversity. The reason why I think music gets a bad reputation today is because people reference the charts. And the music at the charts today are not very, generally speaking, oh, there, there you go. That, that, that's the point. Yes. It, it, I think it used to be the case that good music can chart. And now I, bad music can chart. Some young people I've talked to like the old music better than the top oh, chart music today. My children know more about some artists that yeah. were big during they get rediscovered my again and again. years than yeah. I do. Yeah. Really. So uh, what James is saying then is there's a subset there that is a vibrant, creative. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's a does, long does, tail. It does, doesn't a, get the publicity or the recognition that uh, yeah, chart stuff gets. The scale effects search that the popular people now are so popular, they dominate. And um Uh, You really have to look under the covers. But the long tail is extremely vibrant. Electronic music, independent hip-hop, all that is extremely rich right now. But you really have to look now. You can't just turn on the radio and expect uh, the highest quality music to just... Well, you have uh, numerous radio stations, but then you go online, you realize... Many hundreds of thousands of these things yeah. are out there. Yes, yes. <laughs> and of course, increasingly algorithms are, are playing the role that radio used to play. You can't hear this on the top 40 charts, but if you turn on Spotify's Discover Weekly, um, uh, you will find things that you would never find on the radio, even from you know the good old days, so to speak. But Steve, I want to turn back to, to kind of Forbes, because you made a crucial decision to transform a magazine really into a publishing platform when you went to the internet model, your contributor model. That's something that your competitors have not done. How did you come up with that concept? What were the challenges in executing that? And kind of what's the status of that today? Well, it came from, uh, we were always looking to make uh, outside investments in uh, things that we thought were intriguing and one we had a, a piece of. The fellow running it, uh, especially my brother who uh, did the investment and I think sat on the board for a while, saw that this could be uh, scaled up in terms of uh, what our needs were. So uh, long story short, uh, we we bought him out. 
and uh, he came on board as our chief content officer. Uh, he left about a year and a half ago, two years ago, but uh, he really pushed through this uh, basic model. And uh, if you look at the magazine today versus 10 years ago, it's different, but it's much more tied into uh, what we're doing online. Mm -hmm and uh, trying to make it a whole. One of the things that I think print people knew but didn't realize the significance of is that in the old days, newspapers were packages. Mm -hmm. They had sports scores. They had uh, stock prices. They had crossword puzzles, horoscopes, comics. big things, comics, mm -hmm. huge, especially on Sunday. Mm -hmm. You had news, but it was a package. And uh, online, you get a package to infinity. And this is one thing Netflix discovered years ago, is Hollywood caught on that Hollywood was giving them stuff for virtually nothing and they were making the money, mm -hmm. is uh, you got to give people a reason to uh, subscribe. Mm -hmm. And so they create their own content. Now, everyone is into creating their own content. Good if you're a you know, producer, you have more outlets than ever before. I don't think many of them are going to end up making much money on it. Mm -hmm. You'll get a shakeout, but uh, that's uh, a market at work. Mm -hmm. Everyone sees something, jump in, and we'll see who uh, survives. <laughs> Absolutely. Are these contributors, do they self-sign on? Do you vet them? Um, uh, what what you do is you, uh, you, you try to get people who contribute uh, specialized knowledge in a certain area, what we call the swim lane, your swim lane. There's no way you can read it all before it goes in, but if uh, you have problems in terms of accuracy, you will get uh, thrown off the island. But you uh, do your own editing and you do your own promotion because mm. a chunk of your compensation is determined by the traffic you generate. Mm -hmm. Now, people say, won't that lead to sensational headline? Well, if you have headlines and no substance, you're out. Mm -hmm. You got to do this long term. So uh, you're always having with 3,000 of anything, you're always going to have challenges. Mm -hmm. And then uh, another big thing are the lists. People love lists. You were ahead of lists before they were even an online thing. And uh, again, it shows sometimes an outsider has to do it. Uh, well, the first one, of course, was the Forbes 400, 400 Richest Americans back in 1982. Mm -hmm. It's my father's idea. And he got the 400 from uh, a social arbiter in the 1890s with Mrs. Astor, uh, the New York 400. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so... Okay, Fortune has the 500. We'll have the 400 richest. So it was an arbitrary number. But when he proposed it to the editorial department, they just thought it was the dumbest idea ever. <laughs> they fiercely resisted, cited all the problems. You don't have public information, yada, yada, yada. So finally, my father said, okay, I'm going to do it myself. I may take one or two of your people, but I'm going to hire others, and we're going to do it ourselves and put it in a special issue. Oh, okay, okay. They, they backed off and did it. Turns out you can get a lot of information. It's not precise, obviously, but uh, you can get a good broad range of uh, who's doing it. And what's amazing is the turnover of these lists. Mm -hmm. they, they are not stagnant. In the first one, we had a lot of Rockefellers, sprinkling of DuPonts. Uh, no more DuPonts. The last Rockefeller, David, died a couple of years ago. So uh, there, there is this dynamism. You see it around the world. And one of the things I think has held us in good stead is that we believe in what is now called entrepreneurial capitalism. In the very first issue, my grandfather said the purpose of business is to produce happiness, not to pile up millions. Mm -hmm. And so we believe in entrepreneurial capitalism. We've been compared to a drama critic. We love it when a production's done right. We hate it when it's done wrong. 
but we believe in it. Mm-hmm. I think that's one reason why around the world entrepreneurs relate to Forbes more than they do anything else because they feel that we understand what it is they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. We'll show them how to do the good life. We'll help them. We'll help you out. We don't see you as miscreants or criminals who always have to be watched over by a big brother. And uh, bad ones out there, of course, human beings are always going to be bad ones. But uh, people were doing bad things to each other long before Adam Smith came mm-hmm. along. <laughs> Steve, you have a documentary coming out. Uh, you have a podcast of your own. And I think you have a new edition of Money coming out. Tell us about those projects. Uh, well, the book Money was uh, first written in 2014. Uh, we did a revised edition recently. It was the basis for a public television documentary called In Money We Trust. Done through America, uh, Maryland Public Television, but it's been shown on uh, over 280 public television stations around the country over 900 times. And it gets to uh, what makes money work it is trust. And when money is trustworthy, starting in Athens, good things happen. When money is not trustworthy, you see it in Venezuela, you saw it in Weimar, Germany, the hyperinflation of the 1920s. And money enables us to. Uh, work with each other. We can be total strangers, but if the money's trustworthy, we can work together. It uh, reduces barriers. It doesn't create barriers when it's understood right. And we dedicated the book to Alexander Hamilton. Now, this was even before the play, the, uh, <laughs> when we wrote this thing. Find it here. The dedication and remembrance of Alexander Hamilton, our first Secretary of the Treasury, who established a financial system that propelled generations of entrepreneurs and made America the most creative country on earth. Like few others before or since, he showed that money, properly understood, is the root of all good. Can I ask just one quick question? Sure. In that light, this concept of trust, how do you feel about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that are evolving? Uh, Bitcoin is what you might call a high-tech cry for help. The lack of trust in currencies and the challenge for cryptocurrencies is creating a coin or cryptocurrency that is as trustworthy as gold. Mm -hmm. And Isaac Newton firmly established Britain on the gold standard when he was Mm -hmm. ahead of the mint. Mm -hmm. And he continuously tried to hack his system. Mm -hmm. They call it alchemy, always Mm -hmm. trying to create gold out of base metals. Turned out to be unhackable. And that's what they have to have here. So uh, challenge now is say Bitcoin is it is uh, too much fluctuation, steak one day, dog food the next. But these things I think will be addressed as uh, more and more people apply their brains. And uh, in the meantime, it's performed a very useful role in helping people in distressed situations around the world, mm-hmm. getting around governments that uh, want to control you and starve you and uh, hurt you. So uh, in the movie, we have a fellow saying in uh, 2011, when Argentina was having one of its periodic uh, crises, Cambria, Cambria, you know, the bank, bank. Mm-hmm. Now it's Bitcoin, Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, our first paper, white paper on Bitcoin, was in collaboration with Art Laffer, our friend, my mentor. And I remember when we were simply answering the question, could Bitcoin serve the three roles of money? You know Art, who's not only, he's a policy scholar, both on the fiscal and monetary side. One of the nice things about Art is he not only sees things correctly, but if any economist tries to... uh, 
put them down. He knows the jargon and the equations as oh, better than they do, so they can't uh, pull that game on him. Absolutely. And one of the <laughs> things he said when we were starting out, and he did collaborate and put his name on the paper, he said, I love the fact that this is rules-based. I don't agree with the rule necessarily, the quantity rule, yeah, although he, he does he, for the store right. of value. He, he, he's right on that, I think. Yeah. They, he does for the store of value. That makes sense. But for means of exchange, we but, need but price stability. But he showed his insights by uh, realizing uh, you have to have something that people can trust. Trust. Absolutely. And one of the scandals, as George Gilder has pointed out, is why do we have trading in currencies at the level of $5.1 trillion a day? A day. I know. What a waste of brain power. Well, we have as you say, technology coming along to perhaps change that mindset. The nice thing about technology, it's neutral, so you have to have a sense of right and wrong. But the nice thing about technology is it can blast away the political impediments. Mm -hmm. Everyone cites Uber. I'm old enough to remember when money market funds came along and they found a way to have the $1 par value. And back then, it was the government that set interest rates for what banks could pay on deposits, which was always below market. Mm -hmm. And the money market came along, and if you had a five dollars or a thousand dollars, you'd get the, just about the same yield as somebody who had a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars. Democratized the money markets. Amen. Amen. And Steve, what is the name of your podcast, and what can people expect to learn? The podcast is called "What's Ahead." And uh, we always try to find uh, people who can give insight and perspective on what is happening and will happen uh, in all sorts of ways, whether it's measuring the economy, whether it's uh, looking at technology, whether it's uh, banking, whether it's uh, entrepreneurship and marketing, such as Chip and Joanna Gaines and the Fixer Uppers. And nice, the, the, what's interesting about entrepreneurs is that it underscores what we should all know, and I wish they'd tell students this, is that life does not go in a straight line. And you'll have mistakes. You'll have knockdowns and failures. But you have to have that sense of direction. And it may take time to find it, but it's uh, there. We also have had some good broadcasts on uh, things like uh, climate change from people who actually look at the data instead of uh, wringing their hands. So mm -hmm. I hope it's interesting. I'm having fun at it. Oh, it's very interesting. <laughs> awesome. Steve, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. We're so honored that you are going to be forever on our podcast uh, channel. So thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you for being on my podcast, What's Ahead. Uh, oh. You, you got, got, a, got a good response. Yeah. Oh, well, that was my pleasure. And again, honor. So thank you. That's it for this week. You can find the full ARC team on Twitter. We'll catch you next week. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. 
Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.